Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shift podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. When people come to see me for treatment for their eating disorders, I hear the word recovery a lot. I hear things like, how long is recovery? What am I going to be doing in recovery? And a lot of times I hear recovery scares me. And that last statement, it makes a lot of sense. While most people do not want to have their eating disorder any longer, maybe they even desperately just want to have it done and they'd love to snap their fingers and have it over with. They have it for a reason. Maybe it's an escape or a coping mechanism or a way to numb out their emotions. But the rules, the rituals and behaviors, they can become so much a part of their daily life that they can't even imagine what their life is going to look like without it. And part of their own identity may be wrapped up in their eating disorder. So who they are and everything they know may change dramatically. And that thought can be really scary. And any for any of us, any change can be scary. So I wish I could tell everyone who embarks on recovery to just do it, that it's worth it. And I wish they would just believe me. But I know firsthand myself that blindly believing and trusting someone right at that point, even someone who's a professional or someone who's fully recovered, it's not that easy. It's so hard. And everyone has their own journey in recovery. Everyone does it at their own pace and has their own experience. But that being said, there are some things that we can discuss about what goes on in recovery that pretty much everyone does experience. And there are things, there are some things that make recovery a little bit easier, maybe some things not to do that can make the road not so bumpy. So here with me today to discuss what those things are is someone I am very excited to have on the show. Harriet Few has over 20 years of experience as a counselor and specializes in supporting people with eating disorders and body image issues. She is the host of the popular eating disorder podcast, The Eating Disorder Therapist, and trainer in eating disorders and body image. When she's not recording, she offers individual therapy, online courses, training, and breakthrough days. She is passionate about the therapy relationship and instilling hope that recovery is possible. She's not only an expert by profession, but also through her lived experience as someone who has made a full recovery from bulimia nervosa. Well, Harriet, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you here. Oh, thanks, Christina. Thanks so much for having me. So, um, you know, I've been following your uh, social media for a while, and I really like a lot of your uh, content. And, uh, you know, you're another eating disorder uh, specialist in the field. So I know you have a lot to say here and you're very relative, relevant to my listeners. Um, and I know we talked briefly about uh, recovery and things not to do in recovery. And I get that question a lot from my own patients. And I don't know if you get asked that a lot yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think it is something that um, I think people often ask me more what, what they, they should do <laughs> rather than what they shouldn't do. 
But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very relevant question. So I think as well, often we don't realize that's what we shouldn't be doing. Um, we're a bit oblivious to that. And we're kind of carrying on doing those things um, with not much awareness. Because I think, you know, when people are in recovery, they're, well, if they're really in recovery, they're getting so much treatment and they're getting told, you know, follow this or do this, or they're being asked all sorts of things, but maybe they're not even realizing what some of their behaviors are that are part of the eating disorder. Um, and I think sometimes it's shocking to people like, oh, wait, like looking in a mirror, say, or like looking in reflective um, things like, you know, windows in a department store when I'm walking by or things like that, like those are eating disorder type behaviors. And so um, I know one thing when I had um, looked at some of your content, that was one of the things you had mentioned was, you know, not looking in mirrors, uh, something not to do during recovery. And so I wanted to kind of look at that a little bit. Like if someone asks you like, why shouldn't I do that? Like, why? Why not to do that? <laughs> I think when you have an eating disorder, you're self-worth has become disproportionately linked to your weight and shape and how your body looks so if you think about having like a pie chart and um, with all the different segments of your self-worth kind of um you know the pie chart divided into lots of different different segments I guess if you have an eating disorder often your appearance your weight your control of food that's probably almost become like 18 to 90 percent of how you value yourself and how you value your worth and obviously in the cultures that we live in, I think that is probably always going to be a normal part of how we do evaluate ourselves in terms of our body image. But obviously, if it's 80, 90 percent, that's not very healthy. And it's very, very hard to win at that as well. So I guess one of the reasons I would say to clients is not, not to look in the mirror is actually every time you're looking in the mirror, I guess you're always like looking for that evidence. Like, am I worthy? Do I look OK? what's ha what's changes have happened to my body you're kind of zooming in in quite an unhelpful way to kind of gather evidence I guess and usually to gather evidence that there's something wrong with my body that my body has changed that my body is not right and then I guess you know in a way what we tend to focus on expands you know so if you're looking in the mirror multiple times a day we have 60,000 plus thoughts a day you're probably going to have a lot of those 60,000 thoughts being around your body if you're doing the behavior of looking in the mirror and then of course you know it's a, it's a difficult cycle then you're looking in the mirror you're collecting more evidence that there's something wrong with your body you have more thoughts you have more distressing feelings it drives more of the eating disorder behaviors because you probably don't like what you see in the mirror so you restrict more or you binge to punish yourself or, or do whatever else that you're doing over exercise and it's a perpetuating cycle so I guess it's just starting to realize that kind of connection, really, um, because of as human beings, I think we all have a slightly distorted view of reality, but we do have and we have some control over like what we look at in the world. Um, and I, I just give you an example as well as um, I've got like a red mini car and I, I love my red mini car. And before I got my red mini, I didn't really notice other red minis, but now I have this red mini. <laughs> Um, I see red minis everywhere and I just think oh my god everyone in the world has got a red mini um, and I have a lot of thoughts about red minis but they're generally quite positive and uplifting because I, I love my car 
But um, I guess I'm thinking, you know, if you are looking at your body numerous times a day, you're having thoughts numerous times a day, you're directing your attention towards that numerous times a day, you're probably not going to feel good because it's very, very hard to win. And um, and you're probably looking at yourself in quite a distorted way. You're probably zooming in on your stomach or a part of your body that you don't like. You're probably not seeing the whole body you're not seeing the background you know you are looking for evidence in the mirror that there is something wrong with me and when we go into something with that sort of perspective you're going to find the evidence so there you go it's a bit of a kind of long-winded response but I guess um some thoughts on it really right and um it's very much related to a couple other things maybe not to do is like people say well no and I tell people don't weigh yourself too because that's another external Thing people, you know, the number they look at that, and um, do you kind of agree with that too? Like, not to weigh yourself, look at the number all the time during recovery. Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of similar to the body checking, but also different. But um, I always think of like the weighing scales as like the critical parent almost. <laughs> and if you if you're getting up in the morning and you're starting your day with getting on the weighing scales, it's probably not a great way to start your day and to feel good. Because, you know, going back again to all those thoughts that we have, the 60,000 thoughts, if you are starting your day judging yourself, whether you have been good, in inverted commas, or bad, depending on that number, um, you know, you're probably not going to get the outcome you want. Because even if you have, even if the scales have gone in the direction which feels safer to you, you're probably going to have anxiety about maintaining that. You're probably going to resort to disordered eating behaviours to maintain that. And if the scales have gone in the direction that you don't want them to go in, you are probably then going to feel more distressed. You might be more self-punishing. Again, you might engage in more disordered eating behaviours. And I think once you've got that number in your head at the start of the day, you can't really take that bit of information out of your head, can you? You know, unless you have a very peaceful relationship with the weighing scales, which I think most people don't, you're probably going to have that internal dialogue, that internal critic. You're going to be, you know, ruminating about that number, thinking about what you should do about it. It's probably not going to lead to a lot of peace or good body image. So what would you say to somebody who's like, oh, gosh, I just, I can't not. Like, I've been doing it every day for so long, and I just, I can't get rid of the scale. I, I don't know what to do without it. Like, it, it, I feel so anxious. I'm just drawn to it. Well, I think with all these things, my personal approach is always engage with like baby steps and starting to challenge yourself gently. Now, I don't think there's one size fits all. So if you're the kind of person that likes to go really all in cold turkey, you know, just go and throw them in the bin right now, I guess <laughs> you could do that. But I think for a lot of people, actually starting to reduce your frequency of weighing could be the first step. So, you know, if you're weighing yourself multiple times a day, or every day of the week or something, you might just want to think initially, okay, I'm just going to cut down. I'm going to reduce this a bit. So you can almost like expand your window of tolerance, you know, deal with that anxiety of not weighing yourself, kind of surfing that wave of anxiety, realizing actually nothing bad happened. I'm still here. I, I sort of tolerated that. And then when you feel a bit more comfortable with that, then you can reduce the frequency again. So I think my approach is more like do it gently and incrementally and engage with a long game. You know, even if you reduced it really slowly over the next year, you could be in such a different place by this time next year, rather than trying to do something radical, which feels too much too soon. Right. 
they, if they take it on too quickly, it won't stick. They'll be more likely to go right back to it because it's just too anxiety provoking. Yeah, and I think I think I guess it depends on the individual, doesn't it? I think if you're listening, you need to think about what's right for you because there's no one like perfect route to recovery. You've got to kind of like lean into thinking trying to get more in touch with your own inner voice I guess and thinking what might work for you and and also there's no failure like you could experiment and if it's um too much too soon you can adjust again that's okay but the baby steps really really all add up and count for a great deal I think that's the important message and I love that too because I think people do think that oh gosh if I didn't do this I, I didn't do it the right way there's that, that perfectionism right with people who have eating disorders you know I'll call myself out like <laughs> People know I, I'm recovered, right? There's that, oh, I didn't do it right. I failed. So I might as well just give up and, you know, quit treatment or treatment didn't work for me. I hear that all the time. Like, oh, I tried and it didn't work. Um, but I like what you're saying is like, you know, go about it the way you need to. And there's no right path for this, right? It's your path. Um, some people can do cold turkey. They're just like, all right, scales out. And other people, it's like, well, it might take you a bit longer. That's okay. Just you're not failing. It's just you've taken your steps, however long that takes. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, similarly, with all these things you're talking about with like mirrors, scales, talking about somebody's evaluation of their own body to external things. um, You know, what about comparing themselves to other people, whether it's actual real people in real life or social media, things like that. How much do you think people need to be aware of how much that's hurting them? I think comparing can be quite a toxic habit, can't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, as as human beings, I think we are designed in a way to compare ourselves because we're very social beings. So we're always like looking to others to kind of how we fit in and how we're accepted, etc. And I guess, you know, a bit of comparison if it's inspiring you or uplifting you or encouraging you could be really, really helpful. But I think mostly when we're comparing, we are usually comparing with someone else where we're putting ourselves in that inferior position. You know, we're putting that other person in that superior position. We're putting ourselves in the inferior position. And we're kind of looking again for the evidence that I'm not good enough. So, and I think it's very interesting in terms of like, who we compare ourselves with. So say for example, if you have an issue with your legs, for example, you don't like your legs, <laughs> you'll probably find that when you're out and about in the world, you look at pe- people's legs more than any other body part. You know, I think we all tend to do that. We tend to, so in a, again, we're kind of like, you're kind of going out with these, looking for the evidence that my legs are not good enough. And you're looking at everyone else's legs and particularly people with legs that are more shapely in your perceived opinion so you're going to find the evidence and you're not going to feel good so I think again it's just really helpful to notice if you're comparing yourself a lot just try to interrupt that pattern and realize you know oh I'm doing that thing again it's really really unhelpful it's putting me in the inferior position and even if you occasionally feel in the superior position Again, feeling superior to others in a way is not great either because it really distances you from your fellow humans and it's quite fleeting and fragile. You know, if you feel, oh, I'm actually a bit better than that person, it's usually quite short-lived. 
you know, it's hard. It's it's not really like solid bedrock self esteem. It's very sort of um, external and fleeting. So I think it's just really worth noting, like how am you know what am I doing out in the world? Am I comparing myself a lot? Also thinking, who am I comparing myself with? Because of course, again, we've just talked about kind of being out and about and looking at certain body parts, but also as well, of course, social media. It's very filtered, isn't it? It's seeing someone's kind of highlight reel and you're not seeing a whole load of stuff that's going on behind the scenes. You're seeing that kind of filtered, perfected image. And I often say to my clients, like, you know, go and sit in a cafe and just observe all the different bodies and shapes and sizes of people walking past. And that's not going to be like your Instagram highlight reel, you know, like in terms of like when you're looking, when you're comparing yourself on social media, you're seeing all these perfected images. Actually, when you look out in the real world, you'll see a whole range of bodies, all different sizes, all different ages, all different shapes. And actually, that's much more realistic. Sometimes it's really good to have a bit of reality check, because I think particularly on social media, we get a very distorted view of reality and we forget what we're looking at, even though we kind of know logically rationally okay a lot of these images are filtered it is a highlight reel but it's still really hard not to compare yourself so I guess it's just really thinking about isn't it as well who are you following you know try not to look at if you're suffering from an eating disorder you don't want to be looking at too many bodies really you know I'd be saying like look at cats or travel or art or something else that inspires you rather than going down that kind of rabbit hole of like looking at other people's bodies because it's probably not going to make you feel good and and just really recognize who am I comparing myself with you know I think as well someone might walk into a room if they have an eating disorder there'll be 20 people in the room they will compare themselves with the one person in the room that's thinner than them and they will almost like ignore the others so again, it's just starting to be aware of these things and realize, oh, that's so interesting. I'm comparing myself with this like one person. I'm not really looking at the wider room. So I'm really getting quite a distorted view of reality and I'm ending up not feeling good enough. And I think that's great. To, you know, I often say that to people, it's like this tunnel vision, right? And I don't know if people are aware of that. Maybe just even you saying that can bring some awareness, like, oh, I do do that, right? And that can kind of shift some perspective of like, wait, I need to really kind of take the blinders off and kind of survey the whole environment I'm in instead of just honing in on one person or a couple people and like really fixating on something. Because I think that that is ex exactly what happens and it does ruin like the whole event. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? And I think we tend to assume, don't we? We see someone with what we perceive to be a really good body or whatever and then we assume oh they've got to have the best life and the best relationship and the best career and you know but being really beautiful or being thin is not the answer to happiness <laughs> um you know <laughs> we know that from a lot of like very sort of famous people who are deeply unhappy right well there's that that's the perpetuating uh diet culture message right like that's what that's what's out there is like okay, if you look a certain way, then you have more value, you have more worth, you must be happier. Because I hear that all the time. Oh, if I just look this way, if I just lost this much weight, then I'd be happier, then I'll have the life I want, then I'm going to allow myself to travel or go for the job or start dating or like life just gets put on hold because it's like, I'm not there yet. I'm, or I'm not allowed to yet. Or there's just something like, oh, it's for later. And it's like, well, life's happening now, right? <laughs> 
It's so true, isn't it? And I just think the number of people as well that look back on photos of themselves from like 10 years ago and think, oh my God, at that age, I just thought I looked so horrible and I was so self-critical. And But actually I look back and I think there was nothing wrong with my body. Why did I not appreciate my body? And I think we can have that reality check though, can't we, at any time. I sometimes think myself, you know, in 10 years time, I'm, I'm going to be more wrinkly, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, I could have some aches and pains. Do you know what I mean? Like it's unlikely that my body's going to look objectively better. So you better like celebrate it today, Harriet, and just <laughs> appreciate what you have now. <laughs> but it is, it's always like this constant striving for something and not appreciating right the here and now, like you said. And it's just so sad. Um, you know, and I think that's kind of related to, it's kind of a little bit of a different topic, but I find this people do that with their clothing too, right? They're kind of either holding on to things from the past that maybe they used to fit into like, oh, one day I'll do that. Or like, I don't want to wear my clothes yet because I'm waiting until I am in a different body. And I think that kind of leads to like people living a life where they're not really like, I don't know, there's this, this like not really going out in the world feeling their best selves because they're just kind of in this limbo state of like, oh, I'm just waiting to like treat myself or, or feel comfortable in going out and feeling comfortable in my body. And I don't know what I have to think about that, but that's kind of what I find. People are just kind of always in this limbo state of like not really accepting where they are right now. Yeah, and no, I think it clothing can be a real trigger, can't it? And I think, I think some of my clients as well sometimes will like almost deliberately kind of try on things that they know are too small or try and wear something that's really uncomfortable and then like use that self-punishment and you know I know myself if I'm if I'm wearing jeans that are just a bit tight or something or something that's just not comfortable it's the worst body image trigger isn't it because it's just like it's not nice being uncomfortable so yeah I think I'm totally with you really I think um having a closet full of clothes that actually don't fit you right now and actually perhaps that's an unrealistic place for you to be striving for without you know having disordered eating habits or really being really restrictive there is a lot of power in being able to kind of let go and accepting yourself much much more as you are now and I think it's interesting isn't it because I think I've got a client at the moment who um has you know just bought herself a few new clothes um, at, in the body that she's in now and she said that she cannot believe how much better she feels just in terms of having like treated herself done something self-caring wearing something that's nice wearing something that's comfortable and actually that makes her want to treat her body better um whereas if you're like living in like i don't know tracksuits and you, you know you've got a, a wardrobe of lovely clothes that you can't fit into it's just kind of like bad energy isn't it yeah, it's like I always say, like Ed's living in your closet, like taunting you, constantly speaking, like, oh, you know, it's like you got to get rid of that voice or that noise, because it's just alive and well. And you know, how do you how do you get better? How do you get into re or how do you recover if that's just constantly there, reminding you of like past stuff? Mm, yeah, no, so very true. I mean, I don't know what you think about the. <laughs> even the voice in your head is so negative, right? So if you have these external things, like, I don't know what you think about the, even the labels people give themselves in, you know, as they're trying to get healthy and get, get the recovery. 
Yeah, well, I think generally if you have an eating disorder, you've got a very strong inner critic, haven't you? The way you talk to yourself is often very unkind, very shaming, very critical. And I think that's sort of there regardless for most people. I think most people with eating disorders are not very compassionate and kind and supportive of themselves. And I guess like for some people, then they experience that more as what they'd call the eating disorder voice, don't they? Where they could even, they could experience that as an external voice, or they can experience that as their own internal voice, which is very punishing. So I think, again, there's no one size fits all with this, because I've all the clients I've worked with, people will describe this in very different ways. But I think whether you have external eating disorder voice, or like internal, your own eating disorder voice, or you just have a really strong inner critic. None of those things are going to help you or motivate you really to change. You know, if you're thinking about motivating a friend to change a behavior and feel good about themselves, if you laid into them, if you called them names, if you sort of like, yeah, just were really horrible and judgmental, that person's not going to want to change. They're going to want to run away and hide and like sabotage and feel really bad, aren't they? Whereas when we're encouraging and accepting and uplifting and supportive of others, it motivates them to do better. And, you know, and when I say doing better, I'm just being like being, you know, being kinder to yourself, making those wise decisions to self-care, etc. So if we can apply that more to ourselves, you know, realize in a way being compassionate isn't some sort of fluffy thing that just counsellors tell you to do that's going to mean that you sit on the sofa forever and never achieve your life goals (laughs) you know I think being self-compassionate is very much about being a cheerleader and still really getting out in the world doing the things that are important to you living your purpose but doing it with a lot of warmth and enthusiasm and love behind yourself rather than telling yourself all the things you're doing wrong why why do you think that's so hard for people because I'll often say that like where's your self-care voice like no, that's not going to help me get better. I, you know, I'm, I'm screwing up. I'm failing. Like I, you know, like, why do you, why do you think that's so hard? I mean, I think again, it's back to the culture, isn't it? Like um, the culture is very much like go hard or go home, you know, to achieve your goals, you have to like, I don't know, <laughs> push yourself to the edge of <laughs> your existence almost. It's, it's very sort of strivey culture, isn't it? You know, I think it's very much like, you know, just push yourself, push yourself, push yourself, push yourself. And I think, you know, striving is part of the human experience. I think to achieve goals and stuff, we do need to put in some effort and we do need to kind of have some purpose and some striving. But we also need to balance that with rest and self-care and self-compassion so we can restore ourselves to do more sort of striving. And I think what's missing in the culture often is that whole kind of like the self-care, the self-soothe, the self-compassion bit. It's all about strive, 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 strive. And then I think no wonder then we have an epidemic of anxiety, depression, people using alcohol, food, workaholism, because of actually it's not sustainable. And then people use maladaptive coping strategies to try and find their self-soothe, their self-compassion, because they've got no energy left in a way to do it in more helpful ways. So I think it's um, it comes from the culture and then often how we've been parented and our parents are often unconsciously passing on that kind of striving um, message. And then I think it's very much praised in the culture as well, isn't it? You know, most people, if someone's a workaholic on the whole, 
they're kind of really praised for working so hard, really. Never mind the fact that perhaps they never see their family, they've got an alcohol addiction and their life's falling apart. But hey, at least they're working really hard. So I think, you know, we need a bit more of a shift as a culture, I think, to value striving for purpose, but also to have that balance about rest and self-care and really looking after yourself. Oh my gosh, I hear that all the time. Oh, if I'm resting, I'm do- doing nothing or I'm being lazy and, you know, it's self-indulgence or, you know, this guilt associated with it. Like, uh, it's like this horrible thing. It's like rest has a purpose. You know, like you just said that like three times, like rest, but it's almost <laughs> like this bad thing. Like, oh, I can't do that. Like I'm sitting idle. I'm, I'm wasting time. Like, and, and I don't know if you hear that too, but I hear that all the time. Like it's not allowed. Yeah, well, I think I think as well, we're quite conditioned, um, you know, sort of thinking perhaps particularly as women as well to kind of, I'm thinking about like my mum, you know, my mum grew up in a time where self-care just wasn't even a thing. You know, what was that? You As a woman, you were kind of like, you know, you were here to like look after everybody else. And, you know, if you didn't do that in a way, you felt huge amounts of kind of guilt probably because you weren't fulfilling your purpose. And so I think you know there's lots of generational stuff isn't there as well that's kind of passed on to us and I think it's hard to you know separate ourselves from that because we've been very conditioned by the culture by our family to live in certain ways and we have a lot of strong emotions attached to that as well so it genuinely feels I think for many people that when they're resting when they're taking time out that they're being selfish that they're being self-indulgent but I guess even the first step is starting to just question that and to realize actually, you know, maybe there's another way of looking at this. And um, I mean, I know for myself, since I've become a lot less strivy and looked after myself better and been better at self-caring, then when I am in the more strive place, um, I have so much more energy and enthusiasm for it. And I can really show up wholeheartedly rather than from that kind of like tired, weary, overworked place. Yeah, I find that too. And, you know, just as you were talking, what came to my mind too was almost this, with the eating disorder stuff, it almost seems like self-care, it seems like, oh gosh, if you actually feed yourself, like if that's self-indulgent, that's almost this like, it's not allowed. It's like you're virtuous, like, oh, you're so disciplined. You're so quote unquote good. Like, I wish I could be like you because you're, you know, when people are sticking to the quote unquote diets or the restricting, it's like, restriction of like self-care restriction of taking care of yourself restriction of feeding yourself enough right restriction of not over exercising it's like there's something good about that like that's that's validated right like oh my gosh I wish I could be like you right but that's so not okay the body's hurting in all levels whether you know you're not resting enough or not taking care of yourself enough not feeding yourself enough like all these things like you said they're like validating and validated or like worshipped or like you know like oh that's so great and it's almost like this the opposite of like if you feed yourself and you take care of yourself it's like indulgent you said that word self-indulgent like this it's like a negative connotation like what's wrong with this what what's going on here this is a bad thing like I'm yeah like what wait a minute what's happening <laughs> yeah I mean I guess we just do need a whole like real paradigm shift don't we really because of yeah people are put on pedestals in a way and and seen as almost morally superior if they're like disciplined and restricting their food and doing loads of exercise etc but 
if you're in a disordered eating place with that, you know, you are physically and mentally so compromised, you can't show up in the world as your fully flourishing self because you're preoccupied with food, aren't you? You're like, um, you're, you're not operating as brightly as you could do because if you've got this big handicap, really, um, and what for to be celebrated for being thin? Um, and I think we have to have huge compassion for people because I think the the culture, cultural messages are so strong that it's very, very hard to start to challenge these things and to think about things differently. But actually, I think even just starting to question these things and realize actually, you know, do I really want to be spending my one and precious life almost like pursuing this kind of thinness or whatever? but hugely compromising myself, you know, losing out on so many things, not being able to socialize, not being able to kind of concentrate, not being able to be present, not being able to enjoy things. Yeah, is it really all worth it? And maybe I can start to look at things a little bit differently. Absolutely, you know, because I think that's when you were, we're talking about things not to do for it's like maybe not staying on that mindset too, because yeah, you're compromising your life. And I, you know, I think the number one thing I hear from people is even going into recovery, thinking about it is, oh my gosh, my whole life's going to change. My, my body's going to change. Like, I'm so afraid to let go of this, whatever I've worked so hard to get here. Right. Like this thing of like, I I've done so much to get here. Like I've earned it. Like what happens if I go into recovery, it's all going to implode or I'm going to lose control and like everything's going to change and then and then what right like the fear of the body like not looking like that or like not having the life so structured and regimented and like oh my gosh it's like so scary right like so what not to do recovery maybe it's just to not be so like restrictive and not be so I guess I don't know exactly I'm trying to say but not hurt yourself so much on all levels it sounds like is really what you're saying too definitely you know and I think it's just a very gradual sign to let letting go isn't it because of course if you have controlled your food and your body for quite a long time the fear of letting go of that coping strategy you're kind of letting go of a life raft I mean a life raft with holes in which is not really always keeping your float <laughs> but it's still a life raft isn't it it's something you've kind of clung to and although it's maladaptive it's very safe so I think you know you don't have to like just let go of that life raft again in one you know sort of swoop and sort of be swimming just completely on your own I think again it's like the little baby step so you can start to be experiment with being a bit kinder to yourself or experiment a bit with breaking your routine, experiment a bit with trying something different. And every time you manage to sort of live through that and realize actually that was okay, you know, nothing, it wasn't as bad as I thought because I think our minds overthink things so much. We tell ourselves all these stories about the terrible things that are gonna happen. And in most instances, it's not, anywhere near as bad as what you're predicting and actually it could even be quite good um but it's just daring little by little isn't it to let go um and I think it you know it can be done in baby steps again you know if you if you start to sort of um, interrupt some of your routines start to um, experiment with some of these things you could make a lot of change in a year um you know and and it, it doesn't have to be like ripping the plaster off um, or like throwing the life raft away just in one go you know you can take it at your own pace 
So, you know, if anyone is asking, well, what, is there anything else, like if I do want to think about going into recovery or in, in it right now, is there anything else you could kind of impart on people to think about like what steps they can take that could be helpful for them, like to help them kind of ground themselves or to stick in it or to even attempt going into recovery if they're on the fence? Sure. Well, I think one thing that's really important, I know that really helped me, is just always being very hopeful. Like when I had an eating disorder, I always believed that this was a temporary state and I would be out the other side of it. And I think just even having that belief, it enabled me to keep pursuing roads to try and find support, to try and get through it. And, you know, and I, I did hit quite a lot of dead ends. It wasn't a lot of help available when I was looking for help. Um, but I really firmly believed I was somehow going to come out of this. And I think when you have that hope, that gives you such a big sort of burst of energy forward, really. Because once you start to feel hopeless, you start to become resigned and just, you know, you you let you, you stop seeking for the answers and you the eating disorder can sort of take over more. So I think one thing I'd say is really hold on to hope. Another thing I would say is, it's very normal to feel ambivalent about change, to feel in two minds about change. Um, but sometimes it's really helpful just to like really acknowledge like what are the costs of living with this eating disorder? You know, what are the real costs? And be really honest with yourself, you know, the, the mental costs, the physical costs, the social costs. And also think about what is it giving me? Because if you can be really honest with yourself about what it is giving you, it does open the door to maybe get those needs met in a more healthy way you know if you're if you're needing something from the eating disorder maybe it's helping you manage your emotions or something numbing numbing you from your emotions you know if you you can actually learn healthy and more effective strategies to deal with your emotions um you know which can going to be so much better for your mental health so feeling that you could have other ways of coping i think could be helpful when you acknowledge what you're getting from it i think telling people who you trust in your life that you're struggling just saying things out loud can be very helpful I think it is important to speak to people who accept you who trust you you don't want to be opening up and being vulnerable to someone that's going to be critical and really put you down so I think perhaps think carefully about who you open up to but even if one or two people know um, that can be incredibly helpful yeah um, and I, I guess as well, I'd say like, you know, absorb helpful content. You know, there's a lot of positive and helpful stuff on social media, um, you know, so surround yourself with some of that content, read inspirational books, listen to podcasts, you know, immerse yourself in the recovery world if you're ready for that, you know, because I think that can be really helpful, the sort of drip, drip, drip impact. Um, and, and if you're ready, you could maybe think about getting some help you know, maybe seeing a coach or a therapist and, and working with someone. And I guess it doesn't matter if you're feeling quite ambivalent about recovery. I think you don't have to show up to your first therapy session and be ready to take radical steps forward. Sometimes it can be about exploring your story, exploring your ambivalence, doing a lot of that groundwork first. And that's a really important part of the process. Um absolutely true I think people do think oh gosh if I start therapy or if I go see somebody like I have to be ready to just jump in and go and that may be keeping people from actually making that first appointment or making that first phone call because they're like oh I if I 
do this, then I have to be 100% ready. And that's absolutely not true. Yeah, definitely. And I think I say to people as well, they often think I'm not sick enough. But I think if you're thinking that you might need help when you're listening to this and you recognize that you might have some disordered eating behaviors, you deserve to seek help. And eating disorders don't have a look. 85% of people with eating disorders are not underweight. So I think it's a big permission slip for people to feel that they can reach out and get help. Yeah, I, absolutely. I have a whole podcast on like sick enough because I think that's what I hear. Oh, no, I'm not sick enough. I don't really have one or I don't look like I have one and no one's going to believe me. I've been told that. No, you know what? If that thought's even there. Yes, probably something's going on for sure. Right. Definitely. And you have fantastic content as well. I love your posts. So, um, you know, if people want to come check out your social media, I think you've got some great content on there and people can definitely get some um, help just from reading what you have on there. So if people do want to look at um, the stuff you have out there for, you know, for some help and even contact you, how can they find you? Yes, I mean, I am on Instagram, but I, I got hacked sadly last year so like I had to start my account again so I am not quite I don't have the same presence I used to have but hey you know it's only in social media but um I'm on Instagram as the eating disorder therapist underscore but um a good place as well is just check out my podcast the eating disorder therapist I think I've got over 200 episodes or something now so there's a lot of content there so I'd probably say that's probably one of the best places to go really if you're sort of like wanting to learn more about eating disorders then sort of skills, tips from the therapy room. And if you want to look at my website as well, the eating disorder therapist.co.uk as sort of more information on there about different support I offer. Well, Harriet, I really appreciate you being on here. I know we've got some time difference here, so it's uh, much later for you than it is for me here in the States. So um, is there any last final words before we end for everybody listening? Yeah, I mean, I think I just want to really emphasize, you know, just stay hopeful, recovery is possible, you know, don't give up, reach out for help, you deserve it. And um, yeah, just thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Appreciate all the information you provided. I know the listeners will be very grateful for all this. Thank you so much. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.